Hello everyone, welcome to Cloud Currents, where we engage industry experts to talk about trends, tools, and strategies as they relate to cloud and innovation. Today, we're thrilled to have our guest with us, Huamin Chen. As a senior principal software engineer at Red Hat's Office of the CTO, he's focused on cloud native infrastructure projects. Huamin brings nine year, over nine years of expertise in open source technologies like Kubernetes, OpenShift, Ceph, Rook, and Native. Uh, Huamin is also a founding member of Kubernetes SIG Storage Group and a proactive contributor to multiple CNCF projects. He's also leading sustainability initiatives around energy efficiency and carbon footprint reduction in cloud native environments. He is also involved in various startup companies working on storage, data security, FPGA acceleration, and hardware and software co-design. Uh, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you with us today. Did that sound about right? <laughs> yeah, Matt. Uh, it's my pleasure to meet you. And uh, thank you for the introduction. That's really wonderful. It brings a lot of good memories to our mind. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, so let's get started. Uh, can you walk us through your career journey and how you ended up at Red Hat working on cloud infrastructure? Yeah, um, my pleasure. So uh, when I was starting my career um, almost 20 years ago, I was uh, entering these uh, um, hard decisions, uh, which is the best technologies at the time. You know, the year was uh, um, 20 years ago, 20, uh, 2003. Uh, at the time, the internet bubble was just busted. And where the industry is under the hard pressure. And uh, I entered this, joined this company called EMC. And right now it's called Dell EMC. Uh, this uh, storage company has a lot of uh, advanced technologies. So I joined there. I started working on the storage system called um, uh, High Road, which is a uh, you know hy hybrid file system that's uh, using a uh, lot of uh, technologies uh, in behind. So I was uh, working on a number of uh, platforms, including Linux and Unix. Um, I found out that uh, the Linux uh, infrastructure has so much attractiveness to engineers because we can go into the kernels, ask questions about, uh, in the community, get immediate feedbacks. I was kind of surprised when I was asking questions to Alan Cox, which was like a, almost the head of the Linux software development. And I guess answers right away. It's amazing. Now, uh, after EMC, I spent a few years in other companies and I finally joined Red Hat. Finally, my dreams come true. I was able to meet so many wonderful people in the open source and their personalities, they're open to, you know, uh, questions and open to challenge is um, Paulo. And I really like Red Hat so much. And back to the days uh, when I was working at Red Hat, uh, there's a number of interesting developments in the industry. As you already know, um, uh, in years 2014, uh, virtual machines, um, hub of uh, virtualization was kind of the state of art. But there was an emerging trend in containers, and that totally happens uh, across the industry as a surprise. And I was so fortunate during this wave of development in the very beginning. Well, when I was uh, working on the project called uh, Kubernetes, it's very little known name by then. It's now the, you know, almost like a household name in many of the developers' homes. Um, but back then, I was so fortunate to be one of the few people who are working on Kubernetes and uh, starting the storage stack uh, from very early stage. And I was able to make a lot of contributions to the projects and miss so many wonderful and um, exciting uh, community members. 
And uh, that's why I just fall in love with the projects. And eventually the Kubernetes involved into an organization called Cloud Native Computing Foundation, CNCF. And I was uh, so proud to be a part of the organization and in the community contributing to a number of projects. Uh, first of all, starting from Kubernetes and then I started um, working on Rook when Rook was admitted at the incubation projects in Kubernetes. And I was um, also getting the chance to work on a number of projects before they joined the CNCF at Kubernetes, uh, which is a service platform. And then um, over the years, I got a sense that uh, the CNCF it has so much enthusiasm embracing all the challenges that our industry is facing. It's taken a lead in many of the innovations. Um, for example, the sustainability, which is the topic I will hopefully can continue discussion for the rest of the hour. The CNCF is one of the earliest uh, community to embrace environmental sustainability. There's a technical advisory group, uh, attack on sustainability um, started a year ago, and that's attracted so many participants in the community. And uh, from that point, uh, we were thinking, can we do something for the, in, uh, for the industry, for the community, and actually for our society? So what we do in terms of technology innovation comes in three fronts. Uh, so one of the things we call observation. So the more we see how much energy being used in our data center, in our software, the more chance we can take actions to make things go in the right way. Um, you know, we can use a lot of analogies. Probably one of the uh, things that we can use is like just the, the phone bill. It not, uh, nowadays, it's not a big deal anymore. But back in the days when we, uh, each one of you have the, uh, the smartphones, what we care a lot is the phone bill, right? <laughs> If you're, you know, cellular usage goes out of range, you pay more. And each time, especially when you have a family plan, you have multiple phones. And if you're wondering how much, why I should pay this much for this month, look at your phone bill, look at your cellular usage. Wow, immediately you know somebody's phone is out of control. And then the next month you are taking actions to reduce the cellular usage and your phone bill will go down. So that's the same analogy we're using here. If we know how much energy used by the data center, by the different tenants, different software, then we can take actions to say, bring the energy bill down, reduce the carbon footprints by reduce the shutting down this machine, by shutting down, by optimize this software. So that's the kind of motivation we want to start in terms of uh, to have a sustainable computing environments. Uh, sustainable means two things, be efficient, whilst you continue your practice, uh, not to, you know, means totally shut you down. It makes your life goes sustainable. So that's what we do. The second is uh, we want to be data center to be smart. So we want to identify the opportunities that's where we can optimize the energy usage and carbon reduction in a data center by lots of things. There's a different scheduling algorithms, scaling algorithms, that kind of thing we want to use. And very lastly, we want to make the software greener. Well, at the end of the day, you do not just power the servers to run idle. You want to run software on it. The software is the critical piece that makes the data center greener. So how to make that happen? We want to bring certain metrics, certain tool chains to the software developers. So they will have using these tool chains 
the benchmark their software to identify the bottleneck to find out how they can use less energy to achieve the same thing. So that's one of the three directions we are exploring to hopefully to make our society, our industry go sustainable. I love it. I love it. Very noble. And, and, and I know sustainability is a, a very important thing. Uh, a lot of businesses and a lot of people in general are thinking about. It's not just within business. It's everywhere. Everyone's thinking about sustainability. So it's really interesting points you made in the focus. Um, but I'm curious, um, before we dive more into the, the software, I'm, I'm curious as to uh, what motivated you to start focusing more on sustainability personally? Yeah. Um, so I think the sustainability, um, in a better way or in a personal way, means the frugality. You know, I live in a very frugal life uh, ever since I was a child. I was the second um, you know, child in my, uh, in my family as, uh, when I was little. And our resource was very scarce. And, you know, as the youngest uh, son in the family, you had to make a lot of struggles. You know, finding the better room, finding the, um, you know, fights on the dinner table to get more food, that kind of thing. So I realized, uh, you know, the resource is scarce. If you are not doing something to make things do, uh, that's going to mean a lot of uh, consequences in our life. Uh, when I uh, become older and I have my own family, my own children, uh, so I'm just wondering, do we have enough resource for everybody, especially when the child grow up? Do, uh, do they have enough resource in the future to live peacefully uh, with their peers? Um, so that's kind of a mentality coming to my mind uh, on my day-to-day basis. Um, uh, so that's why I strive to make sure that at least I can do something to sustain our society, sustain the you know the next generation's future, so they uh, have a better, a bright, brighter prospects than us. You know they can live peacefully, they can live um, you know resourcefully uh, with a lot of things, still with a lot of uh, resources in their at their disposal, without have to worry about you know this, uh, the world will end. Um, so in order to to do that, to do that we have to make sure that we are not waste too much. Uh, but that does not mean we should cut off everything they, uh, they are used to right now. They can still do what they want, but can do it in a more efficient way, energy efficient way, environmentally efficient way. So they know um, they are, what they do is consciously for the better goods. Uh, we also have to sacrifice, make a greater sacrifice uh, in their life quality. So that's why we are trying to get a lot of intelligence into our, our industry to make sure that so we are, what we do is a continue, I can continue, but what we do is in a better way than before. That's great. That's great. I really love how you put it with uh, doing what you're doing, but doing it more efficiently um, and not then like not sacrificing um, what you're doing and and making sure uh, you're thinking sustainably as you're doing it. Um, awesome. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the initiatives you're working on. So can you explain some of the goals of the sustainability initiatives you're working, that you're leading at Red Hat? Okay. That's just my, uh, um, very, come to our work, that is going to be very interesting. So uh, we currently uh, have different roadmaps. Um, the roadmap is to have uh, one project deliver and, and uh, continue the next one based on the previous ones. So that's the, we can have a coherent story and that's what we can deliver for the future. 
So the first project is called Kepler. Uh, it's a you know it's a word used by itself, but it also has the it's also a niche means a Kubernetes efficient power level exporter. Um, so the Kepler project is really comes to the goal of uh, make uh, the energy usage uh, observable, meaning that we can report how much energy used by the infrastructure, by your software, and by your tenants. So if you are, uh, have a multi, if you are running a data center for your organization, or if you are using the uh, the cloud infrastructure, you may not just use it for a single application or for single tenants. Chances are you probably going to use the same uh, Kubernetes clusters for multiple tenants in your organization: finance, IT, logistics, marketing, things like that. And each of the departments may be accountable for what they use um, in terms of energy as well as the financial resources. Um, by bringing this um, our metrics into the picture, the end users will know, wow, this is how much I use and uh, what's our first, what carbon footprints look like. So that is very, uh, uh, that's very important in understanding how much um, you know, people can use for our using our project. Once Kepler uh, makes uh, this available, the next step is uh, if people want to take actions, we want to give them the opportunities to optimize the uh, workloads, so they will use less energy. So we do that in two ways. One is called scheduling, the other one is called scaling. When we are making scheduling decisions, meaning that uh, when we have new workloads or new applications to be started in the cluster or in the cloud environments, in the Kubernetes environments, how can we place a workload in the best node, uh, best servers that can serve this workload most energy efficiently? Uh, believe it or not, even though this may look counterintuitive, but it's in science, people discovered that uh, the, um, you do not linearly pack the application and get the same, uh, use the same energy. A certain CPU utilization, the energy usage may be higher than lower. For example, if you are running the CPU as a 70% uh, utilization, and if you add one, uh, 10 percent 10 more utilization, the 10% more, probably going to use in more energy than previously um, uh, stated, uh, you know, from 60 to 70%. So that means we have to consider the characteristics of the servers, especially the CPU and, uh, and the cooling environments, to anticipate this non-linearity and make a sparse decision to place the workload in the equipment in a, on the server that's where, you know, serve the workload more efficiently. So that is the inertia of how scheduling works. The scaling works in a different um, scenario. So it says, uh, if you already have your uh, application, for example, the database or the web, uh, web servers running in the environment, how can we make sure the energy used by the application can be minimized without sacrificing the performance uh, that they are delivering? So one of the um, you know, quick ways to do that is, uh, you know, not all the applications serve their requests on the consistent basis. In the daytime, you're probably using the database server more than at night, right? So let's just say if you're in the daytime, we tune off the CPU frequency as the maximum. So you get the best performance, but you're also using a lot of energy. At night, I just cut the frequency uh, as, you know, at half or maybe to a third of the, you know, the maximum. So you are using much, much less energy but you do not have to uh, have a lot of workload to, to use. So you are not wasting, your, you're sacrificing your performance because your demand is less, you're using less energy. So 
that will help a lot for the uh, um, data space uh, administrators to be more efficient uh, without having to sacrifice their availability. So that's kind of the things we are doing the number two. Number three is really going beyond just compute. You know, we are looking at the different scenarios. How about the you know, storage environments? Data centers, not just for the compute environments, they also serve storage. There's like Amazon, they have a huge storage services, S3, EBS, things like that. And we also have this um, accelerator um, called uh, now, nowadays the AI becomes the big thing, right? So, you know, compute uh, AI storage, this, uh, this, we could have, um, you know, other things, big things coming up. So we want to solve these use cases um, one at a time. So make sure this uh, accountability, uh, accountability and sustainability can continue in each of the scenarios. So that's why we are trying to have a you know, longer roadmap to accommodate for all these scenarios. Excellent. And, and we'll definitely get into AI in a few minutes. I have a few questions okay. before that for you. <laughs> we'll talk a lot about AI. Um, but earlier you mentioned metrics and accountability. Um, why is having better metrics and accountability for energy usage so critical for businesses? Yeah, so that's a very good one. Um, so so the um, metrics and accountability, um, they um, really has two uh, bearings in my mind. Why is this accuracy? The one is the transparency. Um, the same way as we are looking at the financial statements, right? If you are getting the, you know, looking at the company's financial statements using the same accounting methodology, you can reproduce this everywhere uh, without having to rely on certain people's expertise or any of the, you know, black box kind of uh, uh, methodology to understand what is going on. It's completely transparent. So that's why we believe open source and open standards is the best way to communicate with the end users. Um, how we measure things and uh, how we come up with these uh, numbers. So the metrics we are trying to bring up is uh, has two things. One is that uh, we're using the real energy outputs people are familiar with, uh, the what, right? That is people, people are familiar with. And we also come up with the uh, fine granularity. We come up with the workload level. So if you are running a database, we tell you how much energy you use by the database. If you are running web app, uh, that's, that's the number we come up on that application. This will give the people the insights into individual applications they are using. Uh, so that's why we believe Kepler is uh, one of the top uh, forefronts runner in this space. Uh, we are giving them the, the granularity people like, and uh, they can use this and different aggregation level. So if you want to see as low as the process level or container level, Kepler provided us a granularity. If you go up the, you know, want to see the, the tenant level, we also give you that um, aggregation granularity. So that's one of the things. So the transparency is quite critical because we, everything we offer is open source, not just the source code. The way we train the machine learning models, that's also transparent. We do not just give you a model. We give you the whole pipelines, how model gets trained. As, long, as well as the model uh, in open source, so, so you can use it. You can also validate the model, right? You have very good um, accuracy in terms of the model's uh, you know, training metrics. So uh, we believe the, uh, the error range is uh, less than 2%. I believe um, we have not got the, we have a different metrics. So one of the metrics called MAE, the mean absolute error. Uh, that's why it's uh, the new, that depends on which model are you using. Some of the models is as low as uh, I don't know, one, one or two, 
uh, on a, you know 50 and 80 watt basis one or two uh, that is uh, less than one percent right um, and uh, the newer models this has even lower um, uh, error range so so we are really proud of our accuracy so uh, with that in mind so transparency and accuracy so I believe we are really uh, doing uh, um, the people and users um, the give them the benefit um, to using our uh, infrastructures uh, for their uh, environments. Thank you for that. Uh, so I have another question. Um, so a lot of this is, uh, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, taking place in the public cloud. Um, so how are you thinking about optimizing carbon footprint across uh, other cloud types. So let's say someone has a hybrid cloud environment. How are you, how are you thinking about optimizing carbon footprint uh, across those environments? Yeah. So this is a very, uh, you know, actually this is a realistic question in production and people have been wondering that for a long time. So because the, uh, you know, not like uh, the hybrid cloud is really on the premise that uh, you can run your workload everywhere without having to worry about the infrastructure differences. And actually that is, means a lot of challenge. You know, you have to you know, hide the differences between different clouds and the you know, private data center, your, you know, the hyper-scalers. So the differences are really tremendous. Uh, the infrastructure to bring in the, um, the uh, commonalities as you have, they'll have, they'll, uh, have to be done in a very highly weighted way. So Kepler is no exception. We are entering this hybrid cloud environment with a lot of challenges in front of us, but we do have a solution. So our solution is that uh, we actually go into this hybrid cloud the same way as the other softwares. We go into this public cloud, we take actions to measure the power consumptions of each of the data uh, instance, local instances, the machine types. So there are people can, uh, use, can use in the models we build to understand what's their energy consumption of the instances. And then by using these models from different cloud, we can just build up the holistic pictures when people are using the you know, hybrid environments. And we are not just doing this in a you know, you know, um, hidden way. We publish our models um, on different cloud instances uh, uh, at all the same time. So that's why if you are running on Amazon's cloud, for example, which is still undergoing, by the way, it's not done yet. We are building the pipeline to train the models on Amazon's, Amazon cloud. So we train on the cloud as our own expense. We get the models. So when you are using Amazon, this is the model you use. And consequently, we are using a different private cloud, and we are using a different machines that's different from the Amazon's machine. We are going to give you a different model uh, you can use. If you do not have the model, uh, you exact match to your machine. And we have actually the, the training pipeline. You can build the, the models on your environments on your own. So we give them the, the best uh, options they, they can use without to um, you know, reveal their configurations, the secret ingredients underneath. And uh, they can do this without having to worry about their privacy. And uh, we are also providing this open automation and not just a lot of hard work. You have to type this command, I run to get this result, and then copy this result to different inputs. We do all with a lot of automation to save people's, people's time and reduce the entry barriers uh, so people can adopt our um, models and adopt our training pipelines. 
it's great to hear that you're you're considering all these things and you're accounting for uh, these different cloud types because uh, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of companies who aren't just using one pl- a public cloud instance. Sometimes it's multiple public cloud instances in the multi-cloud, or sometimes they have that, like you mentioned, that on or on-prem or sometimes even off-prem in a co-location setting. But how do you manage all those things? So thank you for answering that. That's it's good for especially for listeners who are who are dealing with with infrastructure that that's like that. Um, and it's pretty common um, as we see in our world as well. Um, so shifting a little to to the AI side, what everybody's really excited to <laughs> hear about and talk about. Um, as we were chatting before, uh, we we got into a little bit about AI workloads and and well, large language models. Um, so as we discuss those things, um, the the growth of AI workload, workloads like large language models, their the adoption and energy uses usage is exploding right now. How big of an impact do you think AI uh, innovation will have on cloud infrastructure, uh, both positive and negative? Yeah. Um, so I do see uh, this is a very interesting opening uh, to a new era that we have never experienced before, uh, revolutionary speaking. Um, this is, um, you know, just as we are entering, like I described in my career, I was able to get this uh, containerization very early on. I was fortunately to get into this um, uh, landscape and working with some uh, very exciting projects. But uh, the AI, especially the generative AI, that's the quite difference from all the computing norms that we have been used to for so many years. Um, so speaking of the, the unique opportunities here, and also the uh, unique challenge here is that uh, generative AI is able to reduce a lot of overhead that we are used to um, before. So for example, I'm using the you know, GitHub Copilot, and I see that's giving me a lot of a productivity boost. So I was able to, I do not have to memorize a lot of details as I used to, and I can still get things done. That means a lot of productivity boost means a loss of a reduction in time, but also means the same thing. The, when it generates this content, you have to think about how much energy uh, it's going to use. I, think I read the article a few days ago, uh, just uh, show, um, you know, there's some research revealing that uh, if you ask ChatGPT, you know, basically the form of OpenAI, ask you like 20 or 50 questions, um, the amount of energy and the amount of water for cooling purpose is tremendous. Uh, so next 20 or 50 questions, the water uh, consumption is about five milliliters. Uh, that's quite a lot. <laughs> and you can see that there's millions of people using the charts DVT on a daily basis, uh, how much water it's going to use. And the energy is the same thing. Uh, so according to certain other research, uh, in the beginning of the year, people uh, estimate that the charts DVT used as much uh, energy uh, I don't know what, what, what basis, maybe on a daily basis or on a monthly basis, is equivalent to 175,000 Danish families' uh, annual energy bill. So uh, that's, you know, that's still early this year, and uh, you see this chart really gets you know, more and more users, and I have frequently get uh, network errors on my chart GPT. So that means the energy usage is associated with the popularity of the large language models is just tremendous. So we are facing this unique opportunity by enjoying the benefits of a generative AI. 
But as the industry practitioner, especially focused on sustainability, I'm just really worried about the consequences of how much energy uh, the GBT in the, has consumed, and uh, you know, at the same time, the water uh, that's going to use. That is uh, something we have to take actions and look at how things are working internally to make sure that we are able to provide certain solutions to guess our future in a better way. Yeah, definitely. And then also considering ChatGPT is just one model. <laughs> There's so many others. Uh, we were talking about Google uh, with Bard uh, and, and introducing Gemini into it. We saw some demos uh, shortly <laughs> a few days ago. So there, there are a lot of them. Um, so, so as these grow and, and the adoption grows, um, and companies are adopting these AI workloads, do you think most companies properly measure and optimize for energy consumption of their workload, their AI workloads today? And if not, what do you think would need to change? Yeah. So that is uh, what we are, have been considering a long time. I think that uh, also other companies or products are trying to come up with uh, certain metrics uh, to uh, see how much energy associated with the, not just a, they have different metrics, but at the moment, mostly just a financial terms, right? how many tokens you have consumed because all can react, charged by tokens. But there's no metrics called token, um, every how much uh, energy associated with each token. Well, providing that metrics is important, just like the same way capital works to provide you, you know, how much energy you used um, with this application. So you can potentially provide similar metrics, how much energy uh, associated with that token, if you can understand how these tokens are produced. So by looking at the energy metrics, then, uh, you know, um, you know, the certain ways you have to get people, get the application accountable for the generated tokens. And that's will be one of the ways we can hopefully tame down the energy usage um, associated with the large language models. And, you know, not the language models anymore. They have the vision models, the multimodal models. And that will be a tremendous explosive in the future. So the early we can take actions, bring uh, these, uh, talk, uh, these metrics available, the better chance we can reduce the energy and the carbon footprints in the future. That's great. Um, so do uh, solutions like Kepler leverage machine learning and, and AI um, to estimate things like energy usage and, and carbon footprint? Yes. Um, you actually um, speak the both sides of Kepler. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. Because Kepler itself, that's using machine learning um, in the back, in the heart of the project. Um, we have the, uh, built up the machine learning models, different models to estimate how energy has been uh, used by, so estimate, give estimates uh, based on different deployments, motion machines or biometric machines, how much energy used. Um, so that's how we use the energy. Um, to make Kepler um, available for large language models so they can take actions based on the capital metrics. Uh, we are also working towards that direction. Uh, oftentimes, um, when we say, we give you some uh, metrics and then you can take actions based on these metrics, you have to develop certain software. Developing software is not easy thing and make the software versatile and ubiquitous to make uh, lots of things uh, working takes the, the even harder level so we are considering 
can we use in large language models to make the automation? For example, um, if I just, just the same way, you have your uh, series, right? So you can talk to series to set up timer, you just talk to it. So you don't have to run a program to set up, set it off. In a very similar uh, fashion, if you are giving the, for example, the ChatGPT uh, 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 prompts, reduce the energy for this workload, uh, tune the work, uh, configuration for this workload, if capital re uh, reports certain threshold, is you know, metrics that's about certain threshold. Chances are we can make that automation happen uh, without doing a lot of hard working in terms of programming or, the, uh, or you know, enablement. So once we are, you know, figure out what the tuning maps are over there and how we are able to connect Kepler with large language models, or uh, potentially the ChatGPT or GPT-4, for example, we may be able to do these automations for organizations in a very seamless way, just like the way they ask questions on ChatGPT. They can ask the same question to reduce their energy consumption on their infrastructure by their software. So in a very similar way. Excellent. And it's, it's interesting to think about using machine learning and AI to help optimize for companies running potentially large language models and AI tools and applications in their workloads. So it's like yeah. AI helping AI. It's kind of kind of That's funny true. when you think about it that way. <laughs> yeah, philosophically, that is a very intriguing story. We can just AI, there's no- that's like a, inception. Yeah. That's right, that's right. Um, so what other opportunities exist to leverage AI for optimizing sustainability in your mind? Yeah, um, so, um, so certain other things that we have been working on um, unconsciously and, uh, you know, and willingly, we forecast a lot of things uh, we can do. Uh, AI can, make sure, uh, can bring up this um, uh, vaccine scenario into the front, uh, front stage and help us to build up a lot of optimizations as long as we are able to create the heuristics and instruct the AI to help us uh, on this front. Uh, so the similar way, as we uh, just mentioned, using capital metrics to do the automation, you probably can also tell the AI to build up a lot of other things as well. You know, the productivity boost means we do not have to go to the, you know, going to the, uh, reading the software manuals, going to do internet searches and uh, to find the answers. Language models probably already can give us a very quick answers when we type the question we are, we are looking, or looking for answers. So that can also reduce uh, energy usage in many ways. Um, so for example, you know, when we are uh, engineers, especially programmers have questions, we're going to different internet sources and analyze, uh, reading, uh, ask questions, analyze the, uh, the results, and then based on these results, we write programs. We will probably actually do this in a more efficient or an automated way to use large language models directly to produce what we need. So that's where, you know, even though generating this, com uh, this contents uh, requires large language models to use energy, but in aggregate time for searching, you know, research, um, research and then developing this software, in aggregate, I think the using large language models may potentially have even better uh, efficiency and then you know do it in a manual way in order to make this more streamlined more efficient i think we uh, as the industry potentially needs to have more uh, specialized model 
specialized model in certain ways. Specialized, for example, in software developments in coding. Specialized in, in managing data centers, you know, deployments, um, monitoring, and uh, you know, bug fixing, things like that. By using this specialized model, we can improve the productivity and the potential in the same way we can reduce energy usage. And a specialized model, and many of this is still debatable, but I believe that specialized model is, um, is almost certainly smaller than large language model. Like the generative models, you know, with those trillions of parameters, we probably can use that for billions of parameters to have a specialized model. That is more efficient to use. By using everybody, like use the uh, you know specialist to uh, look for mathematical advice. Like if you are looking for generic practitioners, you probably may not get the same idea. So things like that uh, have play a similar impact. So oh, that's potentially the direction I'm looking for, and hopefully I, we can just generate more uh, sustainable usage of uh, AI models in the future. That's a great answer. Um... So, uh, some more questions for you around around that. Um, earlier, you had mentioned um, scheduling and scaling. Um, are there opportunities that exist to leverage automation and machine learning um, for scheduling and scaling as it relates to like energy uh, efficiency? Yeah. So uh, that is uh, uh, very technical, but I believe this has a lot of uh, interesting impacts uh, on the uh, audience. So on scheduling, uh, we are really looking for at least two uh, machine learning um, um, algorithms or um, techniques. So why is this? Uh, you know, because scheduling has a lot of things to do with uh, time series data, how the jobs arrive and what's your projected job arrival in the future. So there's a, um, you know, um, a RIMA, I forgot the exact terms, is basically on time series uh, 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 forecast based on previous uh, just um, short history, long-term history, on uh, patterns that's all we are looking for. You can project how much traffic that's we are coming in, um, you know, in terms of a uh, 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 number of requests, a number of job arrivals. That's the one thing. The other thing is um, um, based on estimates of the energy consumption or capacity availability in the existing uh, computing environment. So that's and projects uh, on these arrival rates, what could be the best combinations. So things like that will play a long way. Um, so on the scaling side, really that's a thing called a, a reinforced learning, right? Because scaling, you probably don't know how this uh, tune in the first place. Too much CPU, too much memory. Um, it does for a job. It does, does, you know, the configuration work right for the configuration for the application. You will probably want to tune the CPU utilization, or the CPU usage a little bit. See what's the um, feedback and uh, what's the consequence using that sort of feedback to for the next round of tuning. So that's so-called reinforced learning. If the tuning is good. Um, which means we got some better incentive to go into the same direction and make a next step tuning based on the same, uh, uh, same direction, then we are seeing the even better results and then we're going to continue that path. So this reinforced learning um, really is in many ways has been used by AI models, just like the AlphaGo, the Google Deep Brain used to be the human Go player a few years ago. Yeah, so that's based on the idea um, comparatively uh, the Go player, the machine Go player has played the game many, many times and each time learn from the mistake. 
So that's trying to improve yourself. So we are using the same algorithms uh, in the scaling uh, decisions. Uh, so as we're talking about AI um, and sustainability, those things go together, and you've explained very well how, how uh, the opportunities exist. A lot of our listeners potentially, and a lot of businesses in general, are also looking at the cost side, cost optimization. Um, what are some opportunities um, as it relates to sustainability, or what are some benefits as it relates to sustainability and AI that will also have impacts on cost? Because we know cloud cost optimization is a big topic right now. Sustainability is very important too. Where where's that intersection? Can you tell us a little bit about a little bit about that? Yeah. I think that's a, a very practical question, and uh, I do see these questions has been coming up on, on a greater frequency than before, because um, sustainability means two things. One is the energy cost, right? it's a direct cost to you. The other one is the food or carbon cost, which may not be visible in certain places. They are, depends on the geographic locations in the world. You probably see these things more uh, prominent than the other places. For example, if you are living in the European regions, uh, there's a, um, uh, the carbon credit market, uh, it, the pricing, that's a sort of thing, called, uh, there's pricing and there's a quota, right? So in order to get your quota, you have to go to the uh, carbon credit markets and to buy the quota. And that means financial cost. And that's once you have this quota, you have to use it consciously, right? Those do waste the quota. And then that's going to uh, included in your uh, cost models. You know how the company will operate, um, how to distribute the quotas, quota within different organizations. You know, certain operations need more quota than the other, and then the financial resources needs to be adjusted on this basis. So um, that's and the third way is the valuation. So as we are looking at the financial markets, they are looking at the ESG invest, investing, right? environmental, social, and governance. So the ESG environment, uh, it has been up and down, but I see this as a continuation that uh, investors you are looking at your ESG scores uh, when they invest in your business. So if you are doing well on your social side, on your environmental side, on your government side, you'll probably get some more investors interested in you. So that's where you know, potentially boost up your valuation in the market. So I do see that as a you know, free capital market, this is uh, as an incentive for the you know, organizations, for the uh, companies to drive up their social, economical, and also environmental um, ratings. So I think in conjunction of all these factors, you know, energy, actually we are paying more for energy nowadays than before. I should see the utility charts and over the course of uh, the last three years, the energy price in the US has been increased on quite a bit uh, than the past two decades. The same thing in the European market. Uh, so the energy cost, the carbon uh, cost in terms of quota and uh, financial uh, credit, and also on the company's valuation. So these three factors, I think will play a, a very important way uh, in our future of planning. Yeah, definitely. And, and it feels like it could be an episode of its own. Uh, we could probably talk about this all day because there's still the aspect of government regulation that's probably going to come um, uh, along with with some of this. And then you mentioned Europe a little bit um, and, and, and some of that. So who knows if that comes to the U.S. or, or other regions around. So it's very interesting um, thing to consider. Um, in the spirit of looking ahead at things, uh, what what do you see as some 
Major challenges that still need solutions around cloud infrastructure sustainability. Yeah, um, the I think the biggest challenge is uh, regulation. Uh, right now, there's uh, no guidelines from our energy department. Uh, what's uh, the metrics for you know measure the carbon footprints of of software systems? Uh, there's no defined ways to measure that. If you look at the guidelines from um, uh, at the energy department, the EIA, or some other agents, government agencies, you will see find uh, references how much carbon footprints associated with uh, different fossil energy, fossil fuel. So uh, you, uh, there's a uh, very distinct, uh, very straightforward guidelines over there, but you do not find guidelines on software. So that is one of the things. So as a practitioner. I see there are different ways people are inventing in the industry to try to come up with certain uh, methodology and certain standards. Um, this does not help our industry very well. Uh, some methodologies, based on their own understanding, make sense, but not, may not be applicable to other uh, applications or other scenarios. So, if the um, you know there's a transparent and open standards way people can measure, you know, unequivocally. This is how much I, I mean magic over here. That can be transparently reproduced uh, by other um, practitioners on different environments with the same number. So that should be the way that uh, we should be adopting. Once we have uh, adopted ways of measuring and uh, um, uh, variating, then we probably can sit down um, side by side to reporting our report our carbon emissions and also see how we can benchmark against the industry. Right now, because we are lacking of these uh, standards, lacking of this uh, methodology, we are not able to do that. Um, so if I report in my carbon footprints, hypothetically, let's say 100, right? People will use a different tool and a better different number, like it's a 500. Is 500 better than 500? 100 better than 500? It's a question mark. So we do need a standard. And hopefully the, our you know, industry or our governments or in general, our society can come up with such standards that people can use it. I think that is the number one challenge. The number two, in my opinion, is the availability of such tool. So public health has a potentially, I do not have the numbers in front of me, but I suspect that in general, the public health, the hyperscalers, the top three hyperscalers, probably generates the most, use the most energy, and even they are migrating to carbon zero missions, um, they are still have a lot of environmental impacts. Uh, the water usage, you know, the recycling, these are the things. Um, hopefully, they can provide to the end users. So, as the end users, we are using their service. We can take their inputs and make sure that we are, you know, doing a very conscious thing to reduce our own footprints by using their service. So, the public cloud hopefully can provide us the tools and the metrics that we can use, and also same standard way. Right? Not that Microsoft provide metrics, Amazon provide different metrics, but it's not comparable. So you know, so these are kind of a chain reaction. With also common understanding, common standards, then these uh, public clouds probably won't be able to provide these metrics. But on the other hand, these public clouds can drive up the uh, the formation of these standards. Right. Uh, there's actually initiatives and uh, organizations, for example, the Green Software Foundation. Uh, there are certain projects over there trying to drive up this uh, correlation between the public clouds to come up with these standards so we can have a transparent and coherent and consistent ways 
of reviewing our carbon footprint as end user. So I see these as the top challenges uh, we are facing nowadays. And that's very interesting, those challenges and, and the organizations you mentioned. Where would you see them? Where would you like to see them, your, those organizations collaborating more on these issues? Like, what do you, what do you see them doing um, to get around? I know you mentioned there's lack of standards and, and the public cloud uh, providers understanding their usage and reducing their usage. So where do you see organizations like the ones you've mentioned collaborating more on these issues? Yeah, um, so um, the right now, so the, the common themes among all these public clouds that they're using a lot of open software, open source software. And uh, to that standards, um, if they are also use open up open standards, transparent open source, and also open discussion, that's where open up a lot of opportunities. So if they can use, um, you know, de uh, develop or, or adopt open source projects, for the metrics, that's even better. And to that end, um, I have a biased view because I hopefully uh, I can, uh, you know, capture can be adopted in that way to provide, or the methodology developed for capture can provide the, um, you know, any values to that direction. So we do hope the open source, open standards, and the transparency is as why are the drivers uh, for the public clouds to come up with the solution for our society and for our end users. Nice. And uh, what, you, you got a lot of energy when you talk about these things. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I, I got another question. What gets you most exciting about the future of like sustainable cloud initiatives and, and the technology you're working on? What, what gets you really excited about those things? Um, uh, as an engineer, I think uh, my excitement comes from the way that we are able to use the latest technology uh, in developing our technology stack and software stack. Um, so this is, uh, you know, if you're looking back the uh, the methodologies, it's not, the most we are using is not quite new. The academic, the research institute has been working on energy management of software um, systems for many, many years, but um, they are not using the best technologies up to date. So we are using the latest technologies, like Kepler using the eBPF, which is a new thing in the Linux uh, ecosystem and it excites the community quite a lot. And once you say we are using uh, eBPF, people just, ah, this is the project I can jump in. And then we also use machine learning and we are not just using the simple models. We support quite a complicated models, uh, to be honest. So let's like just say we started with uh, linear regression, which is a, a still model of itself, but we are moving on to more sophisticated like XGBoost um, models. And uh, that makes people, wow, if I learn XGBoost, the machine learning, we can use in Kepler, right? So that's kind of uh, technology excitement. Uh, using the latest technology, that's kind of exciting thing to us as accomplishments and also things to motivate people to adopt our projects. So that's why uh, we feel like we like it. The second thing that uh, makes us uh, very enthusiastic is to see that day-to-day uh, -day we see new questions on GitHub. Uh, people ask questions, why this thing is not working and why this is helping them the solve their problems. This kind of um, you know confirmation and reinforcements that we are actually developing something people use. You know, when they report problems, that means they're using our products. So that's kind of thing. You are not working on something with no end users, with no adoptions. 
Um, problems is actually our friend. Um, bugs are our friends, and issues are our friends. Without problems, without bugs, that's it's a, we are working on a dead project. So the more bugs we see, more issues we see, we are, I guess, very excited. And the third thing is that, um, you know, as more, we are working on, uh, as we, discovered, we discussed this earlier, we are working on a number of new uh, uh, cloud environments, server environments, getting hands on these new environments also makes our life as an engineer very exciting too. A little bit understanding how, of how cloud works and uh, you know, how new hardware works, that is a new knowledge to us. Uh, as you uh, keep refreshing knowledge, you feel just rewarded. Um, uh, so that's, that's unlimited. If I can list like a pen spins, I probably can um, have, cut my fingers. Maybe I can use it in my toes. <laughs> Uh, to add more things, but I feel like um, as an engineer in day by day, uh, we get a lot of fresh energy from developing the products and learning new things. Yeah, I love the I love the passion and the excitement around it. I could tell you really enjoy what you do. Uh, it's great stuff. Um, so I'm going to wrap it up. We're going to ask you one last question, and and <laughs> we've had a great conversation so far. Uh, so. If there was one thing that you hoped people listening uh, to this episode today uh, understood, um, what would it be? Just one thing to take away. Uh... Um, I see. Um, I probably want to stress that uh, the open source and open um, open discussion, open uh, standards, transparency, and being openness. Uh, that's probably the, the that's, just, that, that's probably the being openness. Is most important, right? So you probably have the best idea, and but if you have not opened up this idea, you may not find uh, you know your audience, you know people who support you, and you may not find uh, um, criticisms. You know, one great genius may not have the best ideas to cover all the scenario. So open this up, you know, let people hear you, and let people let's uh, uh, come up with discussions. That can get a better impact, a greater impact, and a better futures. So. If our people pay attention to what we have discussed today, let us say, be open. That's probably the most important. Excellent. Well, Huamin, I want to thank you for being here today to speak with us about sustainability, cloud infrastructure, and all the efforts uh, going on at, at, in your role at Red Hat. It was a great conversation, and it left me and hopefully our audience with a lot to think about. Uh, so, so thank you for joining us today. Matt, it's uh, always a pleasure, and I uh, love your, you know, giving us the opportunity to share our thoughts, and hopefully, it can give the, you know, our audience inspirations and passions, uh, to um, explore the sustainable ways and for our future generations. Excellent. Um, and the, the area of sustainability as it relates to the cloud is only going to get more important from here with rise of things like artificial intelligence adoption. Um, so if listeners, you want to follow Huamin, uh, I believe you're on X and LinkedIn, uh, anywhere else, any other channels you want us to mention? <laughs> yeah, we also uh, have the GitHub Slack channels. Uh, we have Capital Heights Slack channel. We also are present on the uh, CNCF Slack channel. That's a capital project uh, channel over there. So you can always ask questions, share your questions. And the most important, join us developing a better products for the future. <laughs>
Yeah, we'll make sure to link to some of those in our description of the podcast episode as well. Um, and also, uh, for listeners, subscribe to Cloud Currents. Uh, feel free uh, wherever you get your podcasts uh, to see all of our conversations on the latest innovations in cloud artificial intelligence and where they intersect and connect. Uh, so we look forward to seeing you again soon. And, and thank you for listening. <laughs>